Look, I think most men are trying to avoid a prostate biopsy despite their PSA being elevated. Today, we're going to interview a colleague, a friend from NYU Langone Department of Urology, Dr. James Weissock, who's a specialist in urologic oncology and even more so in advanced imaging techniques and treatment tools for men with prostate cancer. The reality is you don't want a prostate biopsy, but sometimes you need one and is the gold standard way of determining if you have prostate cancer. With Dr. Weissock today, we'll learn and take a deep dive in when do you need a biopsy? And if you do need one, what's the best type to get? Interview with Dr. James Weissock. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my goal to help you with your urological function, improve your urological function, and live better with age. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Dr. James Weissock, urologic oncologist from New York University Langone Medical Center. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Geo. It's quite a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. We've been talking about having you for, I think, even before I had a podcast, actually. And it's so amazing that here you are, here we are, talking about something that I think is really important. We get, I get asked all the time. So we'll dive right in in a second in terms of biopsies and what are the different types of prostate biopsies available, which one is best, so forth. But Jim, let's start with a little background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why did you get into, I, I know you're a urologic oncologist, but I think you, you're prostate, I mean, we work together. Uh, so you pretty much do a, mostly prostate cancer from a urological standpoint. So take us back. Who are you? Who, who is Dr. James Weissock? Sure. So, you know, look, I guess it, it kind of is a long story. I'll try to keep it brief. But the, the bottom line is I, I'm mostly from the Midwest. I moved around a lot growing up and uh, ultimately was on an earlier career path where I was a chemical engineer for a few years. I never envisioned myself becoming a physician or a urologist or a specifically a prostate cancer specialist in any way when I was younger, uh, but ultimately sort of through an evolution of decisions and, and experiences, found myself wanting to go to medical school. Where So I went to Northwestern University in Chicago where equally sort of without um, predestination, found myself interested in urology. And from there, uh, ended up matching in the match process to New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell's Brady Department of Urology, where I had the the good fortune to get a very strong urologic training. And in that experience, you know, I was really drawn initially into what robotic surgery was being performed at the time. And robotic surgery at that time was almost exclusively prostate cancer, uh, prostatectomy. And that was sort of the foundation. And I, I found that was always really fascinating. Prostate cancer surgery is still an evolving technique and, and art form and, and is a really challenging and interesting surgery and, and certainly something that I'm always interested in improving and learning more about. But through that process, there was an introduction in my training of a novel imaging uh, called multi-parametric MRI of the prostate. And I started to see these images come through because some of my my attendings when I was a resident were utilizing these in a very early form. And I found from that 
a really interesting new look at prostates, something we hadn't had in the past. And that really opened my eyes to, hey, there's a lot to this. Of course, imaging is so powerful, it gives you a new way to observe something and open insights into into something. And I essentially sought out uh, an opportunity to do a fellowship in that area, which was at NYU with Dr. Samir Tanasia, who was one of the leaders and remains one of the thought leaders and you know prime drivers in this area. And uh, I had the great fortune to come down and do a project with him as part of my fellowship under him and my master's thesis, looking at something we can touch upon today, but the utilization of MRI in guiding the detection of prostate cancer. And specifically what I'm talking about is through a targeted biopsy technique. And we call that MRI ultrasound fusion. So that's really the story of where I started and sort of have grown from. And from that, there are many different pathways and many different additional stories we could tell. But ultimately, that was my my path to this prostate cancer arena in which I, I live now. You know, I, I consider you one of the experts um, nationwide. Uh, and maybe there's a little bias, but I, you know, I've seen your presentations at the AUA conferences, the papers you've written since you were a fellow at NYU. By the way, I remember when you were a fellow at NYU. I remember our conversations where we met and I told, yeah, I do this well, holistic urology. And actually, I was impressed with your interest in what I did because throughout my career, though I've worked in medical institutions, there's been some interests or not so much or in some with some other people, uh, you know, a little bit more. So you're keenly interested in what I did and how I did what I do uh, with uh, patients with prostate cancer. So I remember those days. Uh, and, and then you left and came back. And that was a happy day for me. I was happy that you were back at NYU. Yeah. So you're one of the thought leaders in terms of, in my mind anyway, this better way of finding cancer in the prostate that we should pay attention to. I think that from a patient standpoint, you and I have talked about this, right? No one wakes up in the morning saying, man, I can't wait to get a prostate biopsy today. This will be great. No one really wakes up feeling that way. In fact, the opposite is true. So it becomes a question of when we need it, which is the best type to get, and what's the best approach to uh, so from that standpoint as like Dr. Weisock, I mean, and, and of course Dr. Tanisha, and we just have a great group at NYU. You would think they're paying me for this podcast, right? They're not. <laughs> you would think NYU, our department, is paying me for this. Anyway, let's dive right in. And the reason I'm starting with this one fact, which is there's no way of diagnosing prostate cancer without a prostate biopsy. Period. End of story. I want to make sure that that's true, and I know that is, but the re- part of the reason is because this other people, uh, some will call them even quacks, that are doing other things and diagnosing and treating prostate cancer without a prostate biopsy. So can you go into that a little bit? So I think that's a really great uh, question, and it is a compelling question because when you say there's no other way to diagnose prostate cancer other than getting a prostate biopsy, 
it's by and large true today, but that may not always remain true. I mean, hopefully we would consider uh, diagnostic modalities in the future that could evolve. But ultimately, mm-hmm. right now in the current state of our medical technology and our science, a tissue diagnosis is what's required, okay? There are ways that we can infer from other information and be fairly confident we're diagnosing prostate cancer. When I say fairly confident, I mean 99.9%. For example, if you have a PSA of 1,000 and we see you know, that your prostate is firm and very hard on an examination and there's multiple sites of what look like metastatic disease on an image set, you could infer fairly confidently that it is prostate cancer. But again, it always rests upon a tissue diagnosis. And a tissue diagnosis right. must be obtained from the tissue. And that typically comes from a biopsy of that tissue. Now, that tissue doesn't always mean the prostate. If, if there is a concerning site outside of the prostate, we could get that tissue. And that's a biopsy of, say, a lymph node or a bone. But most men, and like you mentioned, aren't really looking to go to the urologist, but most men do see a doctor. And part of that visit may entail getting a PSA test. And a PSA test is a subject for another discussion. (laughs) Right, that's a different conversation, isn't it? Is a marker, it is a trigger, if you will, to investigate. And sometimes that investigation will raise enough flags that I'd say, you know what, we need to do a tissue evaluation because that's the only way I'm going to be able to give you either a yes or no on prostate cancer. And beyond that, if it is prostate cancer, what type of prostate cancer are we dealing with? Because there is an array of pathways, an array of options that we need to consider. Yeah, we'll go into that for sure. And in order to be accurate, though, we need to know that tissue. Correct. That's the only way at this moment in time, as you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you did say, and I want to make sure that our audience doesn't think that they heard wrong. You could have a PSA of a 1,000. You could have a PSA of 3,000. Uh, what's the highest you've ever... I've, the highest PSA I've ever seen is 7,000. How about you, Jim? I think around five, somewhere in that five? range. Five? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw one 7,000, and, and I think I only saw that once. And, and, and I was like, wow, that's... I mean, anything above, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever number, certainly in the hundreds is high, but 7,000, I thought that was interesting. When one goal... so. So they have a PSA and perhaps other biomarkers and MRI that's indicating you need a biopsy. You undergo the biopsy. Tell us about that process and tell us about the, once they're done, there is a a period there where they have to stay in the office and make sure they urinate well. And so tell us why that's done and what are the possible adverse events that can occur from a biopsy? So I guess to take to, to answer that best, we should sort of take a step back and say, okay, well, what does it mean to get tissue from the prostate? Think about where yeah. the prostate is anatomically. The prostate's within the pelvis. It's not readily accessible. There are many different biopsies we can do for other parts of the body. We're very straightforward. For example, skin biopsy, if you have a mole. You know, it's not really a, a major consideration. You go to the dermatologist. But if you are... Uh, concerned about prostate cancer and we need to get tissue from your prostate. Well, how do we even begin to do that? Well, the first way to do that 40 years ago was we would, you know, place a needle 
over a, our finger, if you will, in with the finger in the rectum and sort of guide it on to the prostate blindly and right. take a sample. Now, that's a finger-guided biopsy. That's pretty crude, uh, but that was all we had at that time. Enter in ultrasound technology. So ultrasound technology. Which is now considered a blind biopsy. Correct. Back then, it was revolutionary. We don't, we're no longer using our fingers. You're using ultrasound. Wow. Now that's considered a blind biopsy. But this is a, an incredible revolution because ultrasound allowed us in a fairly non-invasive, and I, we could talk about this, but it's a fairly non-invasive way to see the prostate finally, right? And this was an ultrasound signal sent through a probe placed in the rectum. Now, most men would think that's majorly invasive, and I would agree with them. It's an uncomfortable portion of the procedure, but I like to consider this similar to going to the dentist, meaning that it's going to be uncomfortable, but it really shouldn't be too painful. You get through the dentist work and it's not fun, but you know what? At the end of the day, it wasn't the worst thing. And unfortunately, the ultrasound probe is required at this point. And that's because you do anesthetize the prostate prior to the biopsy, correct? hundred percent. So what we would do is with that ultrasound probe, place it into the rectum. So a man would come to our office. Let's just kind of break it down the process of the biopsy. So yeah. let's say, okay, you need a prostate biopsy. That's the recommendation. We won't even talk about transrectal or transperineal at this point. What we're going to just talk about is what it means to come to the office for a prostate biopsy. In our office, for example, we'd say, look, if you need to have a prostate biopsy, what we want you to do is come to the office, starting an antibiotic by mouth, the day before, and we can get into this because this is really pertinent to the type of biopsies. We would have you start a prostate right. antibiotic the day before, and that would be a three-day course. We'd have you do an enema that you'd administer at home the night before in the morning of the biopsy, and that's probably new to most men as well. Come to the office on the day of, you're fully awake, you're totally unanesthetized, you don't take any medication, pain medication, or anything else otherwise, and we'd have you lie down on your side. You'd lie down on your left side in our office, and first thing that would happen is I would give an injection in the backside of an additional antibiotic, an intramuscular antibiotic. And we can get into those details in a moment because those are very pertinent to the type of biopsy that we do. But the next step is to place an ultrasound probe in the rectum. Now, this is important. This is not anesthetized. This is just an ultrasound probe that we slide into the rectum with a lot of lubricating jelly. It's uncomfortable, but most men can tolerate that. And actually, after it passes into the rectum, it's actually the worst part is just opening and dilating the sphincter as the probe goes in. Okay, most men can tolerate that. Then through that probe, and anesthesia can be placed into and around the prostate. And that will, in effect, numb up the prostate for the rest of the procedure. So that's really what we would expect Excellent. as the starting point. And then it can kind of diverge from there. Then it's psychological a little bit. I hear, I, I don't do biopsies and I've never had one done, but I've been with you guys in the biopsy room a few times. And I hear that clicking noise drives them if if we can invent, Jim, we could we should start working on this some mechanism to not have that clicking noise, which is just drives these guys crazy. Absolutely, because look, at the end of the day, we end up anesthetizing the prostate, and it's not going to be that painful. But there's one thing that is associated with each of those biopsies, and that's the spring of the biopsy gun, and it makes a loud clacking sound. I've warned men every time, and you're right. If we had a silent biopsy gun, I think it would be appreciated across the board. <laughs> So you were talking a little bit about, I don't think I knew this actually, intraprostatic antibiotic? No, no, intramuscular injection on the buttocks. And that 
helps give a broad coverage. So what I've been describing is primarily our approach, which is to use what's called a transrectal biopsy. And so when that initial biopsy technology was developed to use an ultrasound, the idea was, look, we can see the prostate with the ultrasound. Now, how do we sample it? One of the ways that was developed early on was doing what's called a transrectal guided biopsy. So along the ultrasound probe, there's a needle guide. So after we've anesthetized the prostate, we can put a needle in that guide and then we can direct it into the prostate tissue. And that's where that spring loaded sound. So because we're now passing a needle through the probe across the rectum and into the prostate tissue, the rectum is not a sterile environment. In fact, it can't be sterilized. It is full of good bacteria that we need as part of our own microbiome. It's incre- incredibly important for us. And you can't eradicate it. That's an important You point. can't eradicate it. But those bacteria do not need to be in your bloodstream. They could make you severely ill. They could generate sepsis. And so what we do with the antibiotics, because we are going to be penetrating that barrier between the rectum and the prostate and therefore risking the introduction of those bacteria into the bloodstream, we try to lower the bacteria count by giving the short course of antibiotics and then that intramuscular injection at the time of the biopsy also serves to reduce the risk of becoming septic after the biopsy. So that is transrectal biopsy. uh, Biggest problem is that there is an infection risk inherent to passing the needles across the rectum and into the prostate. And that introduction of bacteria varies in its risk. In some environments, there are reports that it could be as high as 5-7%. Meaning you walk into the office right. and you have a 5-7% to 7% chance after that biopsy that you will end up septic in the next 48-72 hours. Right. So typically the scenario is where at some point later after the biopsy, they start developing fever. And that's a quick sign that they just need to go to the emergency room. Telltale. Fevers, chills, yeah. shaking chills, go to the emergency right. room. Call your doctor, go to the emergency room. Right. I see almost probably not all uh, the men after a biopsy in our practice, but I see quite a few. I, I don't remember the last time there was a scenario like that in our institution. Is that because they do what they need to do. Uh, they take the antibiotics, they do the anima, you know, when you do the what, the proper protocol, that significantly reduces the risk. Correct. So I believe that the con- contribution of a low sepsis rate with the transrectal approach that we are happy that we are seeing at NYU with our practice of primarily doing transrectal biopsies is coming through proper use of antibiotics, proper use of that expanded antibiotic, that injection in the muscle probably contributes to significant protection. The enemas help considerably. Uh, one other very important piece that I feel is, is critical is what we call a rectal culture, a rectal swab culture, which is essentially a tool that I utilize for men when I, they initially see me or my nurse practitioner uh, Dana Costanza, when she evaluates a man, either she or I will obtain a rectal culture at the time of that initial evaluation. And all that means is that at the time of your digital rectal exam, we actually just obtain a little bit of a culture. And what we're looking for are antibiotic or what we're looking for are bacterial resistance patterns. And if we see one and flag one before the biopsy, we can adjust 
the antibiotic approach to lower those sepsis rates. So we're looking at a sepsis rate in our practice much lower than 1%, which is great. At, you know, I was quoting earlier, much higher rates that are in the literature. We don't see that, but I attribute a lot of that to the expanded antibiotics and the use of the, the rectal cultures. How many cores, and, and, and we, we could talk about uh, uh, saturation and all these things. The standard is typically about 12. What determines 12 cores versus 16, 20, or even more? Can you break that down for us? Well, that's a complicated question in terms of the what determines it. I think there's no real clear uh, guidance as to what really should determine it. I mean, if you have a 400 cc prostate, you probably need more than 12 to fully sample it in a systematic way. But if you had a 40, and, and for context, be, uh, for context, a 400 cc prostate, it's a, uh, is uh, yeah, an oh, orange. Uh, yeah, I don't know, it, like the size of a this is a bit of medium sized orange. I'd say the average prostate is around 40 cc's. So I was just sort of right. verbalizing there because I wanted to explain that. What we have used as a standard of number of cores has been driven largely by uh, studies performed on the blind biopsy, and we ultimately determined that somewhere between between 10 and 12 is your optimal diagnostic yield. And that ultimately, if you go beyond that with a blind biopsy, say to 16, 18, 24, you don't detect significantly more cancer and you just increase the rate of complications associated with the biopsy without improving the diagnostic yield, right? So ultimately, settling in in that is probably the best way to sample around the gland and try to get enough tissue with enough confidence that if you found something, you got it. And if you didn't find anything, there's nothing there. That's the idea. Now, meaning that ultimately we use that as our driving force, but it has a lot of flaws. You refer to blind biopsy, and I want to make sure the listener knows that you're referring to just an ultrasound-guided biopsy as compared to a uh, MRI-targeted biopsy, just to be clear to our audience. Correct. So blind biopsy, I should probably call systematic sampling. Saturation biopsies, how many cores typically and why? Is that the same scenario? Very big prostate, so we have to pick more cores? Well, saturation tip, it really comes from the concept of we are concerned enough that there's cancer, whether it's based on PSA or even on MRI or uh, some other biomarker. Or prior biopsy with just 12 cores is negative, but PSA keeps Absolutely. rising. So suspicion continues yeah. to rise. So we might entertain the concept of a saturation biopsy. Now, a saturation biopsy in essence means we're going to sample almost everything that we can. And then it becomes dependent upon the size of the prostate. I've done as many as 60 to 70 biopsies in a large gland with a saturation biopsy, or it could be around 30. It also depends on you know what, you, what and how you saturate. But ultimately, a saturation biopsy has very few situations where it's, where it's beneficial. Great. Thank you. And thank you for clarifying that. So bigger prostate, probably with a situation with a uh, a prior biopsy that shows negative, but the PSA velocity is so significant that you're thinking I'm missing something. So then that, that may we require 30 to 60 cores. Correct. So for example, if you have uh, you know a, a PSA that continues to rise, your biopsies have been done in the systematic standard way and you do not have a yield of any cancer, but you're concerned enough, you can say, look, we're going to go ahead and expand our sampling rate because we think we may be missing something. So yeah. saturation gets entertained in that setting. Now, saturation, it should be said, is not done 
uh, often awake and under local anesthesia. If we're starting to take that many cores, it would be done in an environment where we'd have an anesthesiologist and the patient would be under some form of anesthesia. Uh, That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, so they get the biopsy. They have to hang around for like 30 minutes until they have their first urination. What what is that about? And what are the complications that you're trying to uh, uh, pinpoint before they go home? So again, it all relates to where the prostate is and what the prostate's function is. You know, the prostate is a sexual function gland. It's within Mm -hmm. the urinary tract. The urinary tract passes through the prostate. So if we take some needle biopsies of the prostate tissue, there's going to be some pretty readily obvious uh, complications or side effects, if you will, right away. Mm. One of those is blood in the urine. Okay. So a man can expect to see blood in the urine after a biopsy that ranges in how long it lasts. Sometimes it's only a few days, but sometimes it can persist for a few weeks. And in the semen. And in the semen, importantly in the semen, the semen actually can last quite a long time because it depends upon, unlike the urine, where you're going to be emptying the urinary tract frequently and daily, the the seminal vesicles and the semen system in the prostate may not be emptied as frequently. And so that actually blood may linger for quite a while. So I encourage men to be aware of these. Uh, They're going to see these uh, initial um, signs and their first urination after the biopsy and just be ready for it. So hydrate well afterwards and be expecting to see this blood. The what we're worried about specifically in terms of the urination, however, is if you, you can imagine, if you put a needle in the prostate and it's in the urinary tract, it will cause the prostate to swell up a little bit. If the urine, if the prostate swells up a little bit, you can imagine your urinary strength and stream may slow down a little bit. And if your urinary stream slows down enough, you may not be able to urinate. And what we're really looking for here is what we call urinary retention, which means the man can't pee. And in those right. settings, we have to help. Uh, we'd have to put a catheter in in some settings and make sure the urine can leave the bladder because it becomes incredibly painful if the bladder can't am- empty. And, so and is that due to uh, um, a blood clot? Well, no. Clotting of the blood? It's mostly due to, I think, prostate swelling. You know, these biopsies yeah. can cause the prostate to swell. Now, sometimes, yes, blood, if it intro- is introduced into the urinary tract, could actually also block the pathway. But both of those mechanisms contribute. I'd say that the majority of the time, however, is due to swelling. So I've seen PSAs after a biopsy within a month's time, and it's just freaking out the patient, right? Because of course, that PSA is going to be really high. How far after a biopsy is it safe to get a PSA that will give you an accurate reading that has nothing to do with um, from the result of the biopsy itself? Yeah, I mean, you need to be careful whenever you take a PSA that you haven't had a contributing event to causing that PSA to be elevated for a benign reason. For that reason, I tell men, abstain from sexual activity for 72 hours before you obtain your PSA. I think that's important because even sexual activity will cause the PSA to go up. So you can imagine if sexual activity causes the PSA to rise, if I put 16 needles in your prostate and you go get your your PSA tested, it will be up considerably. I actually have an interesting anecdote on that. I had a patient who we did a a 20-core biopsy on under anesthesia, and in the recovery room, they drew his PSA. His PSA is usually, you know, know, four. It was 100. And so, you know, if you look at that on a piece of paper, you say, oh my goodness, you know, the prostate it, cancer is, you know, accelerating. Metastasize well, maybe. Yeah, it's all just uh, related to the sampling time. Uh, yeah. So PSA then should probably not be drawn anywhere near an inflammatory process or any sort of biopsy of the prostate or sexual activity 
you know, six weeks after a biopsy would be my first time point at testing. Mm. And that may still be high, you think? It could be. So you look, you just have falsely. Yeah, falsely elevated. And so you need to take that into consideration when you interpret it. But at the same time, uh, knowing exactly when is it, you, you're out of the woods is hard to say. But by three months, you should absolutely be for most uh, situations. But there can be lingering prostatitis and chronic prostatitis conditions, which cause the PSA to be elevated for a significantly prolonged time period. Sure. All right. So let's segue into something that I think you're doing uh, a really good job on. And I and again, one of the leaders in this area in the country, which is transperineal biopsies. So up until now, we were, we were, we've been talking about transrectal biopsies, but now you're doing something different. Not you're doing now, it's been several years, uh, but now you're doing transperineal biopsies where the biopsy needles are going in between the scrotum and the anus. Why are you kind of still investigating you can you can let us know if it's still an investigation or if it's still something that's uh become will become more or less standard what are the areas that you're able to locate when that is very difficult from a transrectal biopsy uh, that you can get through a transperineal and pros and cons versus transrectal and transperineal actually i have more with so many <laughs> All right, we'll go one at a time. Why are we doing this? So first and foremost, transperineal, it, it is a different way of getting the tissue, right? So we're back to this concept that we have an ultrasound probe in the rectum. How do we get to the prostate? Well, as I mentioned before, the closest way is to go to the prostate through that transrectal approach, but that is risky. There is that bacterial and sepsis risk, yeah. and that is a devastating complication. That's not like a couple weeks of blood in the urine. Right. The transperineal approach is unique and is desirable uh, more recently as those infection risks and rates were starting to increase because you're going to now pass the needle through a pathway that goes directly to the prostate, but there's no rectum involved, just some skin, and then you right. can pass the needle through the skin and into the, the prostate under ultrasound guidance. Again, the ultrasound in the rectum is the same. That doesn't change. It still allows us to visualize it. But you can imagine now we put a needle through the skin and into the prostate. Now, this avoids that sepsis risk. And that's zero chance no, of an infection. Nothing is zero, uh, but it's much. I'm looking for I'm always prodding for that zero percent of anything in medicine. It never, never seems to happen. Correct. There's no there's no zero uh, percent scenario here, but it's lower than transrectal. Okay, so it's in yeah. in when we were when I was quoting those five to seven percent sepsis rates and the transperineal approach would be orders of magnitude lower. Now in our practice where our rates of sepsis are less than one percent, it's not an order of magnitude less, but it is still safer simply because we're not crossing the uh, rectal wall. Now, interestingly, I described earlier that antibiotic profile meaning that we took three days of antibiotics, then we gave an intramuscular injection, and then you uh, keep your risk of sepsis low. When you're taking a transperineal approach, there are emerging data that you may not even need any antibiotics. 
You just need to have your skin surface cleaned very thoroughly right before the biopsies with a skin prep, an ordinary skin prep, which we use for any vision, et cetera. So that actually is going to lower your rate of uh, antibiotic exposure, which is actually something that uh, we've presented on some work I've done at NYU, which is to show that as we increase the use of uh, techniques like active surveillance for prostate cancer or even prostate partial gland ablation focal therapy techniques and men require multiple biopsies over time, they get exposed to antibiotics over and over again. We see that antibiotic uh, resistance patterns do increase over time at probably a rate of about one out of every six uh, men becomes now resistant after exposure. And so it's not insignificant. It's One not, out of every six. Yeah. So you think about it, we will eventually run out of runway with these antibiotics. And so if you can start yeah. to limit exposure, that's a very advantageous strategy. And so that's where transperineal in the modern use yeah. has really been coming from. It, it is to avoid the antibiotics and lower those infection risks. And I think that there is a significant rationale for utilizing that. Is there an improved diagnostic value from a transperineal versus a transrectal? That I would tell you is to be determined. That is to be determined. I would say that we are um, currently seeing data sets out there that would suggest both sides of that story. I have uh, presented data from our own transperineal data sets and specifically looking at whether or not transperineal targeting of an MRI finding versus transrectal targeting of that same finding, if there's any diagnostic differences, and I do not see that in that particular set. There are some ongoing prospective trials, Mm -hmm. and these are, I think, critically important to answering that question. We will see. So I would say in the next... What's your opinion, Jim? We won't hold you to it. What's your opinion? Is it a better diagnostic tool for uh, getting not only prostate cancer, which is, I think we're on the same page. We're not interested in just finding prostate cancer. We're interested in finding prostate cancer that we can treat and save someone's life from dying from the disease. Correct. Uh, You know, Gleason 7s and higher. Absolutely. So that comes down to which is the better diagnostic pathway. And I don't know that I'd say that I would say that I can't give you a blanket, which one's better. What I would tell you is this, it's an individual scenario. What I would also say is there are certain spots of the prostate that may be better sampled with a transperineal approach versus a transrectal and vice versa. So on Mm. an individual basis, if you had a risk profile that said to me, I need to do a biopsy, I could then also say to you, you know what, this may be the better approach to diagnosing that spot. One of those spots, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't scientifically proven uh, in our data sets yet, but it's just conceptually sound in my mind, is that if the lesion or the part of the prostate is very much at the distal, what we call apex, where the prostate... Give us some sort of an idea where that is. So where the prostate, we call it the base where it connects to the bladder... Mm-hmm and the apex right. where it connects to the urethra. So as the urine passes through it, goes from the base towards the apex. That apical mm-hmm. region, meaning towards the urethra, is a little bit more challenging to sample with a transrectal approach. And a transperineal approach will actually start there. And I think you mm. may get a better sampling of that particular region. And there are a few other anatomical considerations of spots that may be more accurately biopsied with the transperineal. For example, another one is right behind the urethra 
So where that urine tube is passing through, if we take a transrectal approach to do that tissue, the needle will go through that tissue, but also right through the urethra, which will induce a lot of bleeding or increased bleeding and probably increased rates of retention. Whereas if I take a transperineal approach, I may be able to go right through that behind it, not create that level of trauma. So there's a few of these uh, anatomical considerations based upon the lesion, lesion location that I might utilize to say, hey, you know what? You would be better served as your diagnostic biopsy with transperineal. Now, I use transperineal in another way as well, which is a different discussion and a different concept, but it's to say you have a diagnostic biopsy. It doesn't matter if it was obtained transperineally or transrectally that says, yes, you do have significant prostate cancer that we want to manage with some form of treatment. We think you shouldn't just watch it. How would we approach it Well, if it's a single site of cancer and it does not appear that there's any other parts of your prostate that have cancer and that single site is visible on MRI, I would then say to a man, look, you are possibly a candidate, and this is for intermediate risk disease only at this time, but you are a candidate for what we call focal therapy or partial gland prostate ablation. Mm -hmm. Those men, I offer a transperineal mapping biopsy. And what that entails is under anesthesia, doing a transperineal sampling, almost a saturation sampling of the tumor itself so that I better can delineate the boundaries of that tumor where it stops and starts so that when I then take them for a prostate ablation or a focal focal therapy, I can more accurately treat them. The limitation stemming from that the MRI may tell me where the heart of the tumor is, but it doesn't necessarily tell me with accuracy where the boundaries of that tumor are. So this biopsy gives me that kind of information. So that's another use of transperineal where I do not think there's a good transrectal version of that. So it helps you from a therapeutic perspective, um, which which type of focal ablation or where to target the focal ablation treatment? Primarily where to target. Yeah. And focal ablation treatment, um, very briefly, are, includes, uh, it could be cryos, right? It could be uh, HIFU, high-intensity uh, focal ultrasound. There's quite a few. Yeah, there's a number of energies available, but the, the concept is that if we can localize the disease, find exactly where it is, and it's limited to one space, we can then take an energy form to that space and treat the tumor in that space and spare the non-cancerous parts of the prostate. And this is a significant advantage in terms of side effect profile. That's something that we're actively investigating at NYU. Fascinating. For a transperineal biopsy, is local anesthesia an option or is it always general anesthesia? Absolutely, local anesthesia is an option. You do not have to have uh, an anesthesiologist there present to do a very... Uh, effective and easy transperineal biopsy. We use local anesthesia in the skin. Again, a bit like going to the dentist, uncomfortable, but shouldn't be painful. I can anesthetize the skin. I can anesthetize around the prostate. Again, similar with the transrectal. And then we could take the biopsies, but it's a slightly different approach. You know, so, you know, a man would have to lie on his back and his legs would be in a set of stirrups and your stirrups would raise the legs. And so that region of your body uh, behind the scrotum, between the anus and the scrotum, getting to that area is a slightly different uh, mechanical approach, if you will. So you you lie in that position, and then we have to anesthetize the skin a little bit differently and then pass the needles in in that regard. 
you still hear the clicking sound that doesn't go away. You still have the blood yeah. in the urine. You still have the blood in right. the semen, and you still have to make sure you can urinate afterwards. So, in essence, the real advantage to it is the infection risk is much lower. Recently, we had a mutual patient, Jim, who had a transperineal biopsy. He said uh, he didn't bleed uh, at all uh, uh, in in his urine afterwards. Is that a common scenario? Well, that scenario occurs. Even with transrectal, it all depends on how the needles create the trauma around the prostate when they pass in. Sometimes they put a little bit more blood into the urinary pathway versus others. So I, I think that there is not a great way to predict that uh, always, uh, but I would not attribute that entirely to the transperineal approach. Before we wrap it up, what is the use of an MRI as it relates to a transperineal? So we know from a transrectal perspective, which is called a targeted a biopsy, which means that you can actually target suspicious lesions a whole lot better than with an ultrasound. What's the benefit, if any, uh, to use an MRI? And is there such thing as a targeted MRI biopsy from a transperineal perspective? So yes, absolutely. The short answer is, 100%, you can do a targeted biopsy transrectally, and you can do a targeted biopsy transperineally. There's a lot of great technologies out there. I'm exploring and am exploring continually different technologies to try to improve the targeting both transrectally and transperineally, but with a major focus lately on trying to find the really best way to continue doing targeted biopsies, but in a transperineal way. So that technology is out there and it absolutely can be done. And I would encourage men who have a prostate cancer concern that they should have an MRI, in my opinion, before getting a biopsy so that the biopsy can be directed. You're going to get a better understanding of the disease volume, the disease grade, when you have that information beforehand. And so that influences transperineal as well. I don't think that transperineal uh, circumvents that that need in my mind. Yeah. Right. You know, this has been great. I, you know, one of the things, and from an integrative medicine perspective, which is what I do, people think, oh man, you must be bored because you know, this is all you do, urology, prostate cancer. Like, no, I'm always, I'm not up to date, even though I read all this thing and I'm working with all these great uh, experts and, and practitioners. I, I saw here again, I, I, I've learned from this podcast. Jim, thanks so much. Listen, thanks for wearing a Chicago Cubs hat and not a Mets hat or a Boston Red Sox hat. I, I, I appreciate that, man, because uh, I don't think we would be doing this podcast with a, <laughs> with a Boston hat. And I, have, I do have love for the Cubs. Uh, uh, hopefully, they'll get it together and start winning again. Uh, Jim, when, where can uh, my audience find you? Uh, NYU Langone, Dr. Finder, Physician Finder, James Wysock, that's W-Y-S-O-C-K. That's my, my, uh, my, uh, website there. I don't have any other personal, uh, social media presence of any note. There okay. is a Twitter and my handle is at Wysock, but quite honestly, that's not something I'm active on, uh, for better or for worse. So I would just refer people to that, uh, NYU website. Listen, it's been real, Jim. Thanks so much for uh, doing this is on a Saturday morning when I know you have uh, all sorts of family responsibilities. So thank you. I appreciate you. And I'll see you on Monday. Gio, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Happy to discuss anytime. All right, brother. Thank you. Thanks 
for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.